The Coffee People podcast is presented by Roastar Coffee Packaging. Roastar is a digital printing company that makes custom printed packaging for coffee products. They make even small roasters look like a really big deal. At Roastar.com, you'll find out about their fast turnaround time, high quality products, and low printing minimums. Roastar will quickly become your favorite source for custom American-made product packaging. Roastar works with small, mid, and large coffee roasters. So if you're ready to upgrade those bags or coffee tins, go to Roastar.com to learn more and connect with the team. You'll find the link in the Coffee People Podcast's show notes. Good morning and welcome to Coffee With. I'm Ryan Wolt, and this is the new podcast where I have a cup of coffee with someone who has a good story to share. This episode, the very first, is being broadcast across all the Roast West Coast platforms, including other podcasts like Coffee Smarter and Coffee People. We're doing that for two reasons. First, we want to get the word out that this new podcast exists. Secondly, I think it's a really good interview, and our guest today has legitimately changed the way I look at the world. You can also find the Coffee with Podcast on RoastWestCoast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. Just search for Coffee with. You can also find any of the links we reference in today's show in this podcast's show notes and in the newsletter, which is found at RoastWestCoast.com. However you got here today, I'm glad you did because this first episode of Coffee With features my conversation with Matthew Hankus. Matt is a physical therapist from Post Falls, Idaho. He's a pretty normal guy who enjoys being outdoors, spending time with his family, including his wife and two children. And he recently went through something truly incredible. He had a heart transplant. I know the weight of that may not come through in podcast form, so I'm going to say it one more time. He had a heart transplant. His chest was opened, a bum heart was removed, and another, more better heart installed. All the veins and ventricles and who knows what else were connected before finally, the surgeons closed his chest. That is mind-blowing to me in so many ways. I'm grateful that Matt is here to share more about his experience leading up to the event, what the day was like, and how things look from the other side. One other thing Matt enjoys, at least I think he does, is the occasional cup of coffee or a beer on the porch with his cousin's husband. Full disclosure, that's me. When I was just thinking about making this show, I made a considerably long list of potential guests to launch with, but Matt and his story were the one that made me want to take the leap. So pour yourself a mug and have a coffee with me and Matt Hankus, heart transplant recipient. Mr. Matt Hankus, welcome to this inaugural episode of Coffee With, uh, you being the with. I've been mulling over the idea of this show where I talk to people outside of the coffee industry uh, for a minute, but I wasn't really sure who I should talk to, who should be the first guest. I was thinking someone who could make an impact, you know, like an astronaut or a famous athlete, political activist, someone like really important. Then in the middle of the night, it hit me. What if it was someone who was just normal, 
And I say that not as a slight or to reduce your stature, but someone who had gone through something extraordinary that has given them, you know, an opportunity to share a story that could have, you know, some real impact. And you were the obvious choice, your family and someone I care about. And I know a little bit about your story. I also admit that my thought process wasn't as cohesive as I may have just implied. But either way, it got me to where we are now, which is me having a cup of coffee with you. And I should start by asking, are you drinking coffee? And can you even drink coffee right now? And I'll get into the why of that in a minute. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm I'm back in the coffee game, which is great. I was uh, drinking NA coffee for the last year because I couldn't have the caffeine uh, related to some heart <laughs> problems. So I'm back into full gravity. So it's uh, nothing fancy, but we're just uh, Folgers and Dunkin' Donuts people. So it's in the cup. <laughs> well, I am drinking something a little bit fancier. Uh, I'm drinking a, a, a cup of Craft 42 Roasters out of British Columbia near you, uh, Kelowna, British Columbia. You're up in Idaho. Uh, they sent me this and I made it in a clever dripper this morning and I did an okay job of it. I want to get into some basics. Uh, one, what's your name? Where do you live? What do you do? All right. Well, my name is Matt Hankus. I'm 40 years old. I live in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I'm a physical therapist uh, by profession. I'm a husband. I'm a father of two uh, girls. Uh, my daughter Hannah is six, and our daughter Elise will be a w- one years old here next next week. So, yes, Hannah is a an absolute riot, and I believe has lost some teeth recently, which has caused some some pretty intense family video chats. Yeah, there was a lot of buildup into that tooth falling out and then it finally <laughs> happened. So quite the event. Let's start with one really important fact of why we're talking today, which is you recently had a heart transplant. They opened up your chest. They took one heart out. They put another one in. How long has it been since the actual uh, transplant? Yeah, so I had my heart transplant on February 4th of this year. So I am nine and a half weeks out from the transplant surgery. Uh, and it's been an amazing journey since, you know, to, to put it very simply, it's an engine swap. <laughs> if we can, <laughs> if we can dumb down one of the most complicated surgeries in the world, it was an engine swap. So they took out a, a diseased heart that I was born with uh, and put in a donor heart that is in much healthier shape that will serve me hopefully many, many years to come. Well, you said it was a diseased heart that you were born with, but you didn't know, your parents didn't know you were born with uh, this this condition, which I believe is called ARVC. Can you tell us what that is? And and then when did you find out there was a problem with your heart? Yeah, the acronym uh, ARVC is Arrhythmogenic Right Ventricular Cardiomyopathy. And, and to break that down uh, in terms, arrhythmogenic means that it has the ability to cause arrhythmias or uh, abnormal heart rhythms, which has led to when I had this condition where they implanted a defibrillator to control that rhythm. The RV is right ventricle, so the more focus on the right side of the heart, which is where the electrical wiring, uh, if you will, lives. And then cardiomyopathy is just a, a blanket term of heart disease. The type of condition that it is is a cardiomyopathy. So ARVC uh, is what I've dealt with since I was 15. I uh, passed out in a high school football game, which ultimately was a ventricular tachycardia or one of those arrhythmias. And if those aren't uh, stopped either through just pure luck, which happened in my case, or they're converted with like an AED. Oftentimes the person will die from that event because their heart rate is going so fast. There's no oxygen to the brain on paper on electrical rhythm. It's four or 500 beats a minute. And at that point your heart just quivers and there's no ability to move blood. So if that were to go on long enough without correction, that could be fatal. Wow. 
I'm, I'm not assuming that you remember that moment of collapsing, but do, have you heard what that was like for people there? You said it was during a football game, so it was a public place. Yeah, uh, a few coaches that kind of saw me drop and were the first people out there. It was a, in a very rural part of Wisconsin, so there wasn't, you know, the Friday night lights with the ambulance crew available and things like that. So just, again, grace to God, I came out of a tachycardia that should have had a different outcome. And ultimately, my parents, thankfully, were a little late finding the field, so they didn't see that first quarter event, which I was grateful for then, and I really still am, because that would have been pretty traumatic to see a kid just drop. So. I would imagine it would have had a lot of impact on your coaches and your teammates and, and kind of anyone in that area. Do you remember what sort of emotion kind of went into finding out? I'm sure you were confused and scared at the time, but when you found out you had this ARVC, did you know, did they tell you then, I mean, this would have been in the 90s, uh, that you would probably need a heart transplant someday? How did that impact you as a teenager? Yeah, at 15, it, the world couldn't hurt you. You know, you were invincible in terms of uh, this was a little thing you shrug off. You know, it happened in the fall, and I was looking forward to getting ready for baseball season, which was my primary sport. So certainly didn't uh, realize the impact or the magnitude of a condition like this in your life. So in that aspect, probably downplayed the severity of it. But I, I did know at the time that management was medication and, in my case, a defibrillator to stop those rhythms. And then either my parents got the conversation or I drifted over my head, but Ultimately, this will lead to heart failure where the muscle itself weakens aside from the rhythm issues, and that can shorten the, the longevity of your native or you know, born heart in that sense. A defibrillator in the 90s, I mean, it's essentially like a electrical pack that shocks your heart back into movement, right? Am I understanding that correctly? Correct. Yeah, it's implanted. So, I mean, a lot of times I use the term pacemaker that people understood that part more, but it was implanted into my chest. Uh, with a wire going into my heart that it would both sense a tachycardia happening and then could deliver a shock through that wire into the heart to essentially do what the paddles do on any medical show you've ever watched, but from an internal standpoint. Do you, could you explain maybe what it feels like for that to happen? <laughs> yeah, the, the first time <laughs> it happened was uh, it was in a gym class setting with you know 20 guys fooling around. So I thought someone threw a basketball square in my shoulder blades and hit me. But then I realized it was one of those events that had happened. And it was kind of this mixed feeling, both of impending doom, because you're in a rhythm where the lights are going to go out, because you know you're going to faint, but also needing that shock to prevent that from happening. But the fear also of there being that's pretty painful um, thump in your chest. That's just wild to be thinking that you could be walking along and all of a sudden something hits you from the inside. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that a 90s defibrillator wasn't as small and efficient as maybe a more recent one was. Correct. Yeah, it was like the 1990s boombox. You just lug it on your shoulder. <laughs> it wasn't quite that big, but I have I have actually retained all four of them I've ever had in me. And uh, there is a little bit of a decreasing size over the last 25 years. So it's a weird thing to collect for people, but I thought it was kind of part of my journey. And I've asked for them after every uh, replacement if I could retain them. So they have shrunk with time, but uh, you know they're very life-saving things that is the, really the safest way to keep someone alive that has a tachycardia history. Wow. A little off topic, but I just learned yesterday that if you have a limb amputated and there's not really anything wrong with the limb that was amputated for some other reason, you can ask to keep the limb and they will oh. provide it for you. Uh, I'm not sure how you store it, just in the fridge next to that first fish your kid caught. I'm not really sure, but it is possible to ask for it. The world of taxidermy has come a long ways. You just never know. <laughs> <laughs> a 
life life then goes on. You have a defibrillator. You're you're a teenager. Did this as you started getting older and you're going into college and you're starting more serious relationships? Eventually, you're talking about having kids uh, with your partner. Did this change choices you made as you got older, or did that kind of fifteen year olds like this isn't going to hurt me? I don't want to acknowledge it. Attitude sort of continue throughout, uh, or how did it affect you as you were moving through the stages of life? Yeah, I think I think I've I changed my course in, in two specific areas in terms of activity. I I did kind of rein in my intensity level of exercise. You know, I was playing high school sports and into college was playing baseball, which is baseball is baseball, which I love, but by way of, was it worth the risk and the concern of getting shocked playing sports? That was an easy decision to give up because I had several events where I try to stretch, stretch a single into a double. And that was enough to kind of fast forward the rhythm to throw it into a tachycardia. So I'd come up from a slide at second and all of a sudden I'd feel my heart racing. And then three seconds later, a big thump and my day was over. And at some point I probably age 20, 21, I said, is this worth it? And, and just said, I'm going to change how I, how I play. And it was more, I would say lower intensity stuff with just general cardio exercise and skiing where I could control kind of some of those things. So it was a decision made to just not have that pain and that risk in my life from an activity standpoint. And then I would say the other area too, that I've modified at the time was looking at my career. Uh, I went into college for athletic training, which is uh, sports medicine, helping athletes, but that can involve emergency life-saving things on a field. And ultimately, I realized with my condition that could progress throughout my career, I didn't want to ever let my inability to get across a field for an injured kid jeopardize someone's safety or health. Again, working in football games at the professional level, player went down and you know we were able to get to him at midfield, which wasn't a long run, but that was one of those events where it really dawned on me that if I'm not able to get there, I, I could put someone's life at risk from that. And that's when I shifted a little bit more into the physical therapy field, which is where I am today, just from a controlled standpoint that I'm in clinic and there's not some of those immediate responses that would be needed based on my heart condition that could be dangerous for me or others. And you mentioned the professional level. I just wanted to throw it out there that you were at one time, I believe, an intern uh, for the Green Bay Packers, probably the greatest football team in the history of the game. You You had that experience and you saw athletes at that level. At any point during this kind of early phase where you're starting to make these truly life-changing decisions about career and what, you know, even what sports you're going to play, is there part of you that is angry or resentful about this or confused? Like, why is this happening to me? Or, or did you just kind of accept it? This is my life and I'm moving forward. I think that's one emotion I never really had was anger or, or like you said, resentment about the condition. I, even with this, I feel like I've lived and I'm living such a good life that I've been blessed with things that I would say, even in spite of a condition that is really life-changing, I gained so many good things from it. I mean, I, how the stars align that I changed my profession that let me meet my wife and start a family. Like that's an upside of what would have, uh, that, that happened from uh, making that switch. So even what I would consider the little things related to this condition, which clearly have become a huge thing by way of a transplant, I still it's, would have called this a net gain and everything was really good that this brought into my world. I mean, that's, that's great to say today, but I feel like in the moment, it's a little bit more of like a keeping an eye on the ball, like, Hey, this, this could turn into something good someday, but it's, it's impressive to hear you say that, but I'm also sitting here going like, I don't think I'd be mature enough or, you know, emotionally mature enough to say in the moment when I couldn't do something I wanted that, well, this will probably work out. Yeah. And maybe there's an element of naivety where I'm just like, this will be fine. Everything is great. 
again, or that invincibility that comes with being a teenager, but very few things in life has this prevented me from doing. Honestly, I've, I've modified things to still be able to ski. I mean, there's many other conditions out there that have far greater impact on their daily function. And I think I either was blessed with how, how minimally uh, impactful my condition was compared to others courses with ARVC, but I still just went for it. I mean, I, I ski, I hunt, I hike, I do things that probably some electrophysiologists would shake their head at and say, you should pick up chess, but ultimately I think I'm glad I did what I did. And that course can't be rewritten. That got me to the point of transplant. A few years ago, well, I should start by saying you mentioned uh, at the top of this, that you were born with this condition, even if you didn't know it, your brother also had this condition and went through a transplant several years ago. So you had the ability to kind of see the transplant process up close, uh, or at least, you know, through him and communicating with him, how did that impact you or how did that prepare you for what you would eventually go through? Yeah. So my brother is uh, this week, actually three years out from his transplant. I've called Jesse my lead blocker since I knew that I was on the list for transplant. I've seen him go through it. I've seen the challenges that came with it for him. And I've seen the successes in his life since. You can read about anything online of someone's experience, but I think it pulls so much more weight when it's your brother that's gone through it. And oddly enough, we share parents. So because of that, we can see how it affects mom and dad. And this is their second go of it. So this was, I think, a different scenario in many different in many different ways, but ultimately they've been through this once with a son that's gone through transplantation. So they had an idea of what's coming ahead. When you were put on the transplant list, when did they make that determination where they say, "Look, you've gone as far as you can go with this heart. We got to do something." How do you go from not being on the list to being on the list, and then how long were you on the list? So 2022 was the year everything had changed. So, and it happened quite abruptly. I was, uh, even in January, I was out hunting in knee deep snow up, up some hills. So I was working pretty hard physically in that condition. And then in February, uh, when I got sick, as a result, I struggled with a flight of stairs or um, walking with any pace across a grocery store parking lot. So it really went in the tank quickly. And they they alluded to that at the transplant center that when people are younger and have systems around the heart that work well, you can compensate for a long time until you're so sick that I say the ball rolls off the cliff. At that point, I just got really sick. And that was the result was how physically limited I was, what I felt like in a blink, but it's been a long time coming. So February of 22, I was hospitalized. And as a result, the I met the heart transplant team at Sacred Heart in Spokane, Washington. And the conversation essentially was, you have a very sick heart. And I think it would be in your best interest to start listing now for transplant because one of the uh, elements of having this heart be yours is how long you've waited for it. In tiebreak situations, the person that's been on the list longer would get the same heart if it could serve two people that are at the same tier of waiting. You say tier of waiting, and I just want to clarify that that refers to essentially like somebody who's been waiting longer, maybe in a different level of health, a different age bracket, a different location even. I mean, what am I missing there? That's right on. So in the heart transplant world, they have statuses one through six. Status one is someone that's hospitalized on mechanical assistance that is very, very ill, that could be having a bad outcome in days to weeks if they don't get a heart. And that course is down to number six, where someone has heart failure, it's on their map, but they're not um, imminently in need of a heart. So they're just on this waiting list accruing time for when a heart could become available. I was a status four for the entire duration of uh, my waiting list, which was 10 months. 
until I received a heart. So status four is the the sickest or most critical person in an outpatient setting. And I never, one of my goals was to never become a status three. Not that I had a lot of control in it, but what that would mean is you're likely admitted on medications or some other um, supportive measures that would require hospitalization. And my goal, internal drive, whatever you'd like to call it, was to be with my family until the day I got the call. I didn't want to have this be any greater impact than it needed to be up until the transplant. That's ultimately what transpired was dropped uh, my daughter off at school in the morning, went to work and was on my way to pick her up when I got the phone call that uh, we have a match for you. I mean, that's just sounds like insanity to me that you you don't know when this call is coming. It could come at any time, but you kind of have to just keep living your life in the moment. When that call comes in, what is that moment like? Is it relief? Is it fear? Is it because everything is going to change. I think the process from the way I understand, I understand it from you and just from some of the reading I did before the show is that you get the call and that's like this transplant is happening now, today, tomorrow, like within the next 24 hours or so, because that heart that they're putting into you is only viable for so long. And if it's not going into you, it's going to go into someone else. Is that that correct? And then how did that call feel for you when you got it in the car? That's it. And um, I feel that this transplant group did a great job of preparing you for the the medical and the physical sides of it. And they, they try to do their best to help with the emotional side, but that's an internal battle, I think, knowing that when literally when your name is thrown in the hat of a waiting list, it could happen that night if somehow the uh, match process lined up for you, or you could wait two years. And that's really the, the internal battle is every 509 phone number I got, that's the area code for Spokane, holy cow, could this be it? And at that point, you know, the phone would ring and you'd jump. And, and some of their rules are you never turn your phone off and you never go out of service without communicating it with us. And where we live in the mountains, if I go with 30 minutes in two different directions, I lose cell signal. So we were essentially grounded to stay within 30 miles of home for the 10 months that we waited, just because I didn't feel that there was a weekend trip that would justify going off the list if that could have been your weekend to get the call. It just was of such a great priority that we made ourselves available every day uh, for the 10 months. You said you got the the call uh, while you were in the car. I mean, I don't know how you don't like run into a stop sign or something at that point. They tell you, yeah, they, they tell you to pull over, breathe, <laughs> take it easy. Uh, and I grabbed a, a pen and paper in my truck, just like so I jot down some notes because I knew I would, this would blow over in the history of my experiences. I wanted to document what I could in terms of the nitty gritty details. I have expected you to say you reached into the back of the truck and grabbed a Miller Lite. This is Idaho after all. It is. I, you know, I think showing up legally <laughs> drunk for your transplant's a bad starting point. Uh, well, you wouldn't get that bad off a of Miller Lite. I want to talk to you a little bit about this transplant donor list. You said that they recommended you throw your name on that list or get your name on that list because how long you're on it impacts, you know, if you're the next one up, essentially. Which I'll be honest, when when you first said that, my my response was like, well, that's kind of a little political strategy there. Like, you know, should I go on it before, like a day before or a week before? I probably could, or a month, you know, whatever. But what is this list actually a list of? And is is this list available to the public? How do you get on it? I'm assuming it's just essentially two lists. You know, people who need hearts and people who are willing to give one if the opportunity arises. Do you apply for it? Do they decide if you go on it for you? What is that that like? Yes. So each organ transplant site, and, and of course, I'm speaking heart specific based on my experience. So the heart transplant team in Spokane does a workup and says this patient 
in our eyes qualifies for transplantation or does not. Uh, and thankfully, I was someone that was a suitable candidate to receive a heart. So when they finish their workup, they list me on that one to six statuses, and this is where you'll begin. So I was a status four. So there's an organization that handles the uh, allocation of the heart, and that's UNOS, and that's United Network for Organ Sharing. So they're essentially the people that control the list in terms of when a heart becomes available into the pool, who gets it? How does that happen? So they utilize a lot of different features in terms of matching criterion, right? A common one is blood type. My body would resist a heart that is the wrong blood type. So that would certainly disqualify an available heart to specific uh, candidates because that wouldn't match. And then it goes down from there in terms of size of the donor's body for the sake of chest cavity needs to be a near match because that will have a role and will that heart fit in the recipient's body. And I only know a very, very slight amount of the matching characteristics. But the other big one too is antibodies, which is in your life, what has my body fought back against that would now create antibodies that would resist if a donor heart has the same antibodies. So I was really lucky in the sense that my antibody panel was zero, meaning I've got none in my body. So based on that, I can take any which heart in. I know of another person in the program that had a 90% antibody panel. So only one in 10 hearts that come available theoretically would work for him. So that was a blessing in the sense of my body was really readily available to accept heart with any antibody profile. So UNOS would have me entered as a candidate in their database. And then when a heart becomes available, they enter everything into the database and that does its smart thing on the computer side and finds potential matches. The way it works in terms of allocation is they start nearest the location of the donor. Uh, a big factor in the success of transplant is how long does it take to go from donor's body into mine? And obviously, so that step could be essentially removed if they did it in the same city where the donor body is living. So it's this concentric circle uh, of rings, how they look at distribution. So the way they start first is let's just pick San Diego where you're located. So if there was a donor in San Diego, they would start in the San Diego area with status one and two people, the sickest people in that location. If there's not a match with that or a program does not excited to accept that heart, then it would go to one and two in a bigger geographic area. If, again, at that point, no one needs it, they go back into the statuses threes and fours in your area. So it's kind of this shrinking and expanding range going all the way out to eight hours away, potentially, that could utilize this heart. And that's how someone that would be a status six may get a heart is that it's played this game and no one locally needs it and is expanded to a less severe, less critical person. So that's kind of how the, the game, if you can call it that, is formulated to get the heart to the right people that are the sickest. I'm immediately thinking of strategies. If I were a person in need, would I move closer to a place that is near a surgical center? You happen to live near one, which is coincidental, but you do. Would I potentially look at places where there's more car accidents? You know, What would be the, the situation if you're that desperate Like to think about it? I would imagine there are people who, who do make that choice and say, well, I'm going to move somewhere closer to this facility because my odds will get better. Yeah, exactly. Uh, locally, uh, one of my colleagues, her uncle lives nearly on the Canadian border in Idaho, and they're, they're in really a remote spot where that would be tough. So he ultimately chose to list at Cedar sinai in LA. So he lived in an apartment for four months in Los Angeles, just waiting for his call to come. And thankfully he got it and uh, he's back in beautiful North Idaho doing great. But he made that decision to go into a larger metro area where 
theoretically more donors become available. You just look at the statistics of where people are congregated and sadly more deaths are going to occur where there's 7 million people than where there's 1 million. That's the option they chose to take. We, you know, a combination, I think, of our gut feel with this program as well as how it was less impactful on the life of a family with two little kids or at that point, um, you know, we were still pregnant making these decisions. So it was looking ahead. Is this where we want to be? And I think it was a great decision as this has played out, but we just felt that we were confident that we would get a heart in this location without having to play the game of moving to a bigger city. You're on the recipient side, obviously. Who is on the donor side of things? And I say that a little bit, you know, tongue in cheek. I thought I was on a donor list, but I recently made sure that I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know, so I know how that goes. And I'll share that obviously after the show and links and everything. But who are the people that are on that donation side that ultimately were the reason you got a heart? And how do they get there? So, one of the most common ways you can get signed up is through your local DMV. That's a very straightforward process to make the decision to be an organ donor. Um, another website that is very user friendly is donatelife.net. And that has easy links to getting. Uh, yourself signed up and available to become an organ donor. So that's kind of the process of if you're deciding to make that choice to donate your organs, if you were to to pass away, that's the channel that you would go about it. So the gentleman that passed away made the decision to become an organ donor, most likely prior to his accident or whatever led to his passing. Um, So when... I'm going to interrupt you. I'm sorry. I don't mean to to be rude, but you say, presumably, you don't know who this person is. They don't tell you, right? And that's one of the, I would say, the backbones of UNOS is to maintain integrity of the donor's family, is that there's never any direct way for me to communicate with them to express loss or thanks or any which way or to reach out to find out how things happen or how they live their life. That's, and I think, a very important part of what UNOS does is to provide that anonymity to people that maybe are on the fence about donation as one reason why they might say, let's just keep this totally anonymous and they're essentially the intermediary. If I would like to write a letter to the donor's family, I write it through UNOS and they would deliver it to them in that fashion so that it's there's always that safety net of never having to speak directly until they can make that decision if they'd like to or not. And I ultimately respect whichever way they'd like to move forward. But I just still, as part of my healing process, I would like to thank them for the sacrifice um, that they made by the decision to donate an organ and just really express... Um, my sadness jointly just for the loss of a family member. Before I so rudely interrupted you, you were talking about uh, the donor who gave you your heart and that presumably he had made a choice to donate an organ. And we had said that you can, you can get on the list through a, a website like uh, donatelife.net uh, or at your DMV. But you also mentioned his family and, and just their involvement, presumably if the situation were uh, complicated on their end that they also are making a choice or they are also having to come to grips with the fact that part of him is going to continue on somewhere else, uh, hopefully. And they may not know where that is, obviously, as well. Now that you have this new heart in you uh, for the last nine and a half weeks, is that something you're kind of continually aware of? I know, obviously, that things change over time and you're still going through this process of of recovery, which we'll talk about in a minute. But how often are you thinking about the fact that someone else gave up this heart for you? I think it's on a on a daily basis. I think of the gift I've received, and it can be something really little. It can be a it can be a profound moment, um, you know, from 
doing experience with my family since it's like, I'm living because of someone else's heart. And, and ultimately they, they are keeping me alive um, to just to continue to do what I'm doing. It can be something as small as uh, right now I'm in cardiac rehab and I feel like, you know, I'm trying to progressively strengthen and get my, my body back to where it can be at its optimal cardiovascular standpoint. And there's been times on a treadmill or an elliptical where I'm working out and I'm tired and I want to quit. And it's something where, Hey, this is, you're on bonus time in life because you've um, received an organ when you could have been gone. So don't, don't quit on something when that's the easy out Just continue to work for this. I want to get back into the the process of the heart transplant. You get the call. You head to Spokane to the, the heart transplant center. You know, your family's going through a bunch of logistics, trying to figure out where they're all going, what's happening, when. How much of the science of this process did you understand, or is it possible to even explain? I mean, we talked about it being an engine replacement, but it's a little more complicated than that. I'm not expecting you to explain it the way a doctor would, but when you went under, did you understand what was happening? What sort of complications could have stopped it from being successful. My understanding is there's a chance they could have gotten you on the table and decided we're not even going to do this. You don't know what's going to happen for sure. What was that like being there at the hospital, getting ready for this to happen, not knowing, you know, where's this going to go? Yeah. I mean, they, and they do prep you for that in terms of this can be 99% ready to go. And there's a, there's a last minute curveball that, that stops the process. And I appreciate their, their strict standards to say, we find something that would say this isn't an optimal match and we need to, to pause on the transplant. Uh, and they call that a dry, excuse me, they call that a dry run in the profession where uh, you may even get to the point of being sedated and they have the heart next to yours on the table and they say, pause, there's, there's a valve issue or there's something um, that would say this isn't a good fit. And at that point, they would just bring you out of sedation and say, we're sorry, but we found something right before we were going to put this heart in you that wasn't a suitable fit. And that would be, I think, devastating to experience it. But I think once that, the rawness of that event cooled, I think you'd be thankful that they ultimately are still looking at your best interest in mind. And this, as hard as it was, wasn't the best fit. That's something they have you plan on to at least think through in case it were happen to happen. But ultimately in my case, they prepped me and said, um, you know, we're, the, the heart is on its way. We're going to get you ready. And then that's the last I remembered from uh, the, the front side of this procedure. Do you remember what your last thoughts were before you fell asleep? I feel like ideally you'd want it to be some profound, amazing thing, but there's also part of me that's like, you're thinking like, oh man, I should have mailed that letter, you know, like, <laughs> Yeah, there wasn't anything big. I'm sure it was milling over what Aaron Rodgers was, you know, going to do with his <laughs> trade request at the time. But no, I, I, I was just honestly of all the emotions I felt, I was excited that entire event from Friday night when I got the phone call saying that we're going to do this really early on Saturday morning. I was excited for this because I knew a how long I'd waited, and that is a tough pr- process. And then secondly, just knowing what the future is going to bring with a healthy heart and how much better I'll be. Um, so I was excited all the way through that weekend going into it. When you woke up, what was your feeling? I'm assuming the first time you wake up, you're probably a little out of it, but you know, what was that experience like of waking up and knowing that there was this new thing inside of you and, you know, you do get this, this additional bonus time. The first thought I had ultimately was when they attempted to extubate, which means take the breathing tube out of your mouth. And that was probably at 
11 at night or one in the morning. I don't, I wasn't able to roll over and look at the clock, but I know it was late at night of the surgery. But, but ultimately I remember them saying, Matt, try to breathe. We're pulling this tube out of your mouth. And even in that level of medication in my brain, I, I was excited because I knew that they wouldn't have put a breathing tube in me if they didn't do the surgery. So even that, you know, drugged up, I was excited because I knew this surgery had happened. So at that point I knew I had a new heart and then obviously the cognitive steps took a while for me to get there the next morning, but just was really, even in a heavy state of sedation, I, I, I acknowledged I had a new heart. And that was a really interesting thing when I look back that that kind of was the switch that connected the dots for me that said, you got a heart. Once you have the heart, it's not over, right? I mean, there's still obviously the healing of just the surgery and any surgery of healing, but there's also a chance that the heart doesn't take, so to speak, right? Am I understanding that where you could, they could put it in, everything seems right, but the body says, this is not mine. Uh, I don't want it here. What do I do? I mean, is that something that you're continuing to deal with or that that you were worried about, if they were worried about, I assume they wouldn't be worried about it necessarily if they actually put the heart in, but it is a possibility, right? Yeah. Rejection is the biggest risk uh, inherent to a transplanted heart for the rest of your life. Uh, even when they have gotten really, really good at matching, you know, in terms of the blood types and the antibodies and things like that. I mean, they're essentially perfect on paper, but there's still the, your body's natural immune defenses that want to they want to fight back, you know, whether you have a splinter in your finger, you have a cold, your body's going to fight back from an immunologic standpoint to say, this isn't me, it's foreign and I get it out of here. So that's the, the challenge is what, to what level can we give medication to suppress your immune system to, to stop that fight back, but then also not expose you to other illnesses and things that's going to let you get pneumonia and, and kill you from pneumonia in three months. Like that's the, the delicate game that they play from a medication standpoint. And that you just said that for the rest of your life, this is a possibility. And so you're always going to be playing this game of like suppressing your immune system. So it doesn't get angry at the heart inside you, but also doesn't fully expose you to like a cold that might be just a cold for someone else, but might be more for you. Right. Yeah, it's like you need to you need to uh, re- reduce your immunity, but then also not let down your defenses so much that every cold could could be very very dangerous. So, and that's I think ultimately moving forward is your biggest issue to manage with a transplanted heart is the immunity standpoint and and decisions you make in life that three months ago I totally took for granted. The things now are cautions or even things I have to totally avoid. So that's that's really the long term success story of your heart is. Can you keep it intact and and comfortable from a rejection standpoint? Now that the surgery is over, we're a couple months out. What is your health status today? And then what does your recovery look like over the next year? And how does it slowly transition into just your normal life? So the management after transplant is so much of it just monitoring, like you mentioned regarding the rejection status. So for the first month, I had weekly biopsies where they actually take a small piece of heart tissue, uh, and then can look at it from a cellular level. Is there any rejection going on? Labs are a very, very common part of this where they can see some things. Uh, lab markers would indicate rejection, but then they also do biopsies of the heart tissue itself. Uh, and that frequency is decreasing. So now I'm down to once a month of being 
biopsied where they actually take heart tissue and look at it. So that's how the first year goes in terms of frequent biopsies to make sure that this heart is taking into my body and that it's a good match and their medication is appropriate based on suppression so that it's not, again, leaving the door open for something to get me sick, uh, as well as not being so low that the heart decides to be rejected by my immune system. So that's the challenge moving forward. That's like you said, is forever, but it's, it's all new to me this first year. So that'll be something that will be a continual challenge. And I just want to kind of reference this, but you're not on lockdown the way you were before trying to wait for the heart, but you are also in a state of where you're at risk in this first year. And so you're not currently working, I believe. And like your family is kind of in a little bit of a bubble. I think we all, everyone listening knows what that's like, at least to some extent uh, after COVID. How are you guys handling that time now? I mean, I don't want to be, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? I don't want to be disrespectful of it, but it kind of maybe gives you a chance to just be together as a family, but while also going, well, there's a reason for it. Yeah, COVID gave us a three-year practice run of uh, existing in a small sphere of the world and living in a bubble, like you said, where um, because my immune system is at its maximal level of suppression right now, uh, safety is probably paramount at this point. So they give a medication the night before my transplant to essentially delete my entire immune system. So that's an IV the night before. And they said that takes about three months to wear off. So I'm still in that window where I'm at my most susceptible up until about week 12. And then at that point, it drops a little bit, but I'm still on some steroids and other medications that will phase out by month six. So uh, really the first six months are probably the most risky by way of getting a cold, which is why I'm out of work for that six months is to let my body get to a point that's a little more longstanding in terms of its immunosuppression before we get reintroduced to society with uh, kids in school and, and me going back to work as a physical therapist where I'm hands-on with patients. So there's there's good reason in waiting at this point to, to get back to those things. I would say one of the biggest unintended uh, gains from this surgery was just the fact that we're shut in. My wife is off just because she has to help with uh, our baby Elise because I wasn't yet cleared to lift um, the 20 pounds that she weighs. So because of that, um, we're around as husband and wife, and then our two kids are in the house. So it's really kind of been a chance to kind of regain the the structure of our family here is we're, we're at home every day. I'm Mr. Matt. I'm Hannah's teacher right now. So I'm teaching her first grade, which has already surpassed some of my intellect, which doesn't bode well <laughs> for the rest of my teaching career. But uh, so I'm teaching Hannah and then Leanna is taking care of Elise because she can help with the day-to-day things that come with a one-year-old baby. So it has definitely been an upside of being home every day and just focusing on us. We've all been through a lot, whether we've acknowledged that or not, but this last year has been very trying and now we're able to just spend it with the four of us. I would imagine the stress levels just day-to-day, it's like anything, you don't realize the weight of it until it's over. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I felt that way about the coronavirus, and and I don't think the coronavirus is over necessarily, but I think the weight of that first year wasn't really known to me until later. And Mm -hmm. I know that your family has been a a great source of of joy and support, but I would imagine there's there's a new type of stress now, but it's a different type of stress that's looking forward instead of fear. You know, I think we've come to the realization after I've been transplanted, but for so long we we're fearful of the transplant event. Um, I don't want to call it end game, but it was just the, the, the final stage of this disease was going to result in a transplant. But looking now that I've had eight weeks, nine weeks to really be feeling great, I shouldn't have feared the transplant. I should have feared the last year leading up to it. I was very sick. And again, whether through just 
my my low level intellect or just being brave. I didn't realize maybe how sick and dangerous living life was the last year for me. You know, I've had a chance to review some of my medical notes and that's kind of what was impressed upon me was how how sick all the doctors alluded to in my note, aside from the labs and things like that, but just seeing words like tenuous and, and obviously sick and things like that really opened my eyes to maybe the risky part wasn't the transplant, it was getting the transplant. And that, unfortunately for a lot of people, they don't live long enough to get their heart. So I, that's another certainly big check mark in the wind column for me is I was able to stay healthy enough long enough to get this heart. When I called you on the phone to tell you that I wanted to, to talk to you about this, possibly for this show, uh, which I didn't know for sure you'd want to do, you told me at, at the time that you wanted to be an advocate for transplanting and for donation. I'm wondering, what does that mean to you? How do you see that working? Uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about organ donation, and uh, I hope I can honestly be better versed at it so I can have that conversation with people that have questions for me about how it works, uh, you know certainly coming from someone firsthand that's been a benefactor of the donation system, I think that can leave an imprint on someone if they're ever on the fence to say, hey, I know Matt or he's my therapist and why would I not make that decision if it could save someone like his his life? Ultimately, it's a very personal decision to make a the organ donation your choice. And I can certainly inform people on why I think it's important, but I have to respect if someone chooses not to. But I think the more I tell my story, that's just a chance that it could resonate with someone that if they are a fence sitter on the decision, maybe it would tip them towards saying, all right, I, I know this person and I'll move forward to choosing to be an organ donor. Now that you, you've gone through this process and you're already impacting you know people, like obviously I told you that I made sure that I was on the donor list, how can people support the transplant registry? How can... Uh, what are some concrete ways that people can say, oh, you know what? I was inspired by Matt. I want to do this. I mean, I think the biggest impact that I or anyone could make would be to have more people sign up to be a donor. I mean, there's there was only 3,000 hearts done last year in the United States. That's in the grand scheme of our population. That's a very, very small number of hearts. And there's clearly a shortage of available organs. So if there'd be any any win on this, it'd be more people sign up for that. Certainly, organ donation groups could can utilize funds uh, to to move forward with their mission to to get more hearts available, more organs available, um, educate others about why becoming a donor is important. And I I purely am scratching the surface of my role at this point, but I think the more people I can tell about my story, I think if you can place a person's face to that decision that you could make, I think that's going to be a good thing moving forward for for others that are waiting for an organ. You just mentioned, you know, donations or funds. There's more that goes into the impact of a transplant and the recipient of the transplant beyond just your health. There's also the stress we talked about, challenges for families to navigate the logistics. Obviously, you have, you have two kids, and you just mentioned that you couldn't even pick up your baby at first because of the the weight, the strain it would put on your heart. But also the financial uh, impact of it. I think I read somewhere, maybe in something that uh, your brother posted about the cost of a transplant is like a million dollars, roughly on average, which when I think about it, makes a lot of sense. But where does that come from? I mean, is that just covered under your normal insurance? You know, how does that impact you? You're not working. There are all these other challenges that go beyond it. And I could see where, depending on your circumstance in life, you get this new heart and then you're stuck in a kind of a rough you know, financial area, but also just like, what am I going to do now? I'm wondering if you can speak to any of those other impacts beyond 
and I don't mean it to be negative, but also just like to be upfront with people like, Hey, there are other challenges here. Yeah. I mean, I think when I did the initial research about heart transplantation and you do see those numbers from 1.2 to $1.6 million for like the 30 days surrounding a transplant or something like that. I don't have the specifics, but it's well north of a million dollars for the, for the course of care. I think I got a pre-authorization for the surgery and it was like $930,000. So it's something like that. I mean, it's not hard to accrue a million dollar uh, bill for your hospitalization for a transplant. So uh, thankful, you know, to have good employer sponsored insurance. So in that sense, I'm able to at least have a ceiling effect with an out-of-pocket max where that's as far as this thing will go for me financially. But like you said, on the flip side, just being out of work for a prolonged period of time changes the game in terms of your ability to make money and ultimately support your family. So that's, that's the current challenge we're working through, but it's something that we thankfully had time to plan. You know, if someone got very sick very quickly and became a, became a status one heart uh, waiting list person and, you know, say at a weekend weekend event and they're in the hospital the rest of the way, they're not able to save up for this or to, to take those financial steps to try to get ahead. So in our case, we kind of knew this was coming down the road and just tried to change some of the things that we did in terms of financial habits and just try to save some money for the realization this day is coming where our our jobs will be impacted and there'll be some bills coming in. Yeah, that's intense. Um, what about positive impacts? I mean, you seem like a very optimistic person in general, and I know that to be, you know, your personality as a as a, a friend. But how are you feeling now any differently afterwards as opposed to before? Any new changes in terms of gratitude or, or faith or support or anything like that? Yeah, I certainly think that I was a person that tried to express gratitude a lot before my transplant, even before I was waiting for that. I just felt that you know, life's too short not to be thankful for things. And uh, like I said, even in spite of a pretty dangerous heart condition, I was always almost thankful that I had it by way of how it formed my life. People I met, the career choice I made, the experiences I had in life were oftentimes due to that condition. So I think I was uh, trying to live a very thankful life. And I don't think that has served me wrong uh, over my years. I've been lucky to see some cool things and do some great experiences and meet wonderful people. And I think that has just gotten me to transplantation and now I'm moving forward. I, I think I'm profoundly thankful, you know, for the sacrifice the donor's family had made by way of um, the decision to be to list as an organ donor. I wouldn't be here, it wouldn't be this good if it wasn't for that decision. So I'm so thankful. I, I do feel a responsibility to continue to live right and treat people well and just let my values drive how I live. And that ultimately is a way for me to carry on this gentleman's life moving forward. Is there anything that I didn't ask or I forgot, something that we didn't cover that you think people should know or about this process or about you as we kind of come to the end of this chat? I mean, I, I think ultimately, you know, the, the big red letter item on the calendar is the transplant date, but there's so much on both sides of it, both the waiting period coming up at, uh, until you get that phone call. That is just a, a trial. And I, you know, I've had a chance to meet some people that are on the waiting list currently and they are going through that, but it is such a relief to be on the other side of waiting, even in the acute phase of being in the hospital and being pain, painful from a surgery, but you know that your wait is over and now new challenges begin. And like you alluded to, it's something that there'll be challenges every day of the rest of my life by way of medication management or the re risk of rejection that the fears have shifted in Leanne and I, um, that it's not 
going to be a tachycardia that, that could take me, that it could be something long-term from an immunologic standpoint or a rejection standpoint. So the fears shift, but they're still fearful. It's not like you'd cross the finish line and the race is over. It's a different race. That's really a, an interesting way of looking at it. I feel like we have a lot of examples in pop culture and uh, you know on television and movies about kind of the challenges of other diseases, but I can't honestly think of one that talks about the lead up and the post of a transplant, you know, maybe a, a, an episode of Grey's Anatomy where they show the, the dramatic part of it, but mm-hmm. this fact that it, it encompasses your entire life uh, leading up and beyond, I don't necessarily see as much as you do with some, some other terrible things that people are dealing with. I, I wanted to just give you a chance if you, if there was anything and I didn't prep you for this, so I apologize, but uh, if there's anyone you wanted to just say thank you to, or anyone you wanted to, to shout out, you know, that's been there for you in this process and any last uh, thoughts? I think I have to take a very broad approach and thank friends and family. I don't want to uh, specifically. <laughs> I was kind of hoping you would thank me personally, but I mean, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, as a, as a global theme, we've been so lucky with the support of our friends uh, and family, both locally here in Idaho, as well as distant in the Midwest where we grew up. But I mean, they, they got us there. I mean, they were able to help us by way of support and just, you know, friendly phone calls and chances to check in with people while we were waiting because our life was such a low level and just kind of in this holding pattern that we weren't doing a lot. So weekly chats, catch up with people were great and uh, cards from people. And then um, ultimately since the transplant happened, we've just been flooded with generosity and it's almost to an embarrassing level of the wealth we have in terms of friends and family. It's just something that they have supported us a hundredfold greater than I thought we'd have even with our good group of friends. It's just been one of those things that I'm truly fortunate and our family is fortunate to have the people in our lives that are, that are uh, helping us move ahead. It, it feels weird to say a little bit, but I w- just congratulations on surviving. <laughs> you know, that's actually funny you use that term. When I was in the Heart, uh, heart Institute and in the ICU and then onto the heart floor after transplant, so many nurses and lab techs and even, you know, docs that came in that say congratulations. And I don't think you get a congratulations if you had one too many sausages and you had a blocked <laughs> muscle and a heart attack. Like it was just a really weird thought that dawned on me, like this is something to celebrate by way of being a recipient of a heart that when people in a medical facility congratulate you on your surgery, that just was such a spin on the classic way of medical management by the healthcare model that you're congratulated for something you had done. That's really a cool way to look at it. And I was, that just, I think, fast forwarded your, your gratitude of the entire experience, hearing people congratulate you on having a heart transplant. And I would imagine for them to see a successful transplant is a celebration as well, because there is so much that doesn't go right in the medical mm-hmm. profession. And, and we've seen how wearing and taxing that can be on people who are nurses and doctors over the last several years. And it's always been that way, but I think it was just more apparent um, to people out in the world uh, recently. So I think it is a celebration. I know that my wife and I are just, you know, we've got emotional when we heard that the transplant was happening and, and that it had gone well and has continued to go well. And, you know, we're, we're we're just thrilled and i and i'm i'm glad that we have this opportunity now to chat about it and tell people about the donor list and i'll share all that stuff uh on on the website and the newsletter and all that fun stuff afterwards but thanks for for being here and being willing to talk about this and i'm sure that it won't be the last time 
no, I appreciate your time. And it's, uh, it's fun to tell my story. And I know it's unique compared to even my brothers and everybody else that's experienced uh, uh, receiving an organ. But I think that, that in my case, it's just something that's started well. And I hope that it continues to be a, a daily improvement in terms of my abilities and just realization that this is a long road with really no finish line. And that's maybe the mentality that I have to have moving forward is that every day this thing requires work and uh, it will get easier. But in the, in the acute phase here, it's going to be going to be a, a challenge and we're doing well with it, but we'll keep battling for sure. Uh, well, Matt, thank you so much for being here. I was so engrossed. I didn't even finish my coffee, but I'm going to do that now. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll talk to you again soon, man. That sounds great. Thanks for uh, calling, Ryan. Appreciate talking to you. So, wow. There's so much more that Matt and I could have gone into. We could have chatted about him and his wife's decision surrounding family planning, or we could have dived into the genetic details of ARVC. Those could be episodes in and of themselves. But I think for today, we've got enough to chew on. Before I share some key takeaways, I wanted to define a few terms. The first definition is paraphrased from hopkinsmedicine.org. ARVC, or arrhythmiogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, is a rare familial disorder that may cause ventricular tachycardia and sudden cardiac death in young, apparently healthy individuals. The hallmark of the disease is ventricular arrhythmias, arising predominantly from the right ventricle. I had to look up a few of those words. A tachycardia is when someone has a rapid heartbeat, upwards of 100 beats per minute or more and an arrhythmia is an irregularity in the force or rhythm of the heartbeat. So now for our key takeaways. If you take anything from today's show, it is the importance and need for more people to sign up for the transplant donors list. I did recently on donatelife.net, and it took all of 30 seconds. You can make choices about your decision to transplant some or all of your organs. That will be recorded and accessible should the unfortunate happen and your organs become available. You could be the reason that someone else out there gets a second chance. Again, I did that on DonateLife.net. Matt learned early on, from his experience with ARVC, that we have a finite number of days. It may not have sunk in right away, but the kernel of that knowledge was planted during that high school football game 25 years ago. I find it quite inspiring how he seems to instinctively look at the positives. That came with his condition not the negatives. He even called it a net gain in his life, pointing at how it led him to his partnership with his wife, the choices he made in his career, and now his young kids, who, if they're listening to this someday, should know that I think they're awesome. Potential heart transplant recipients fall on a scale from 1 to 6. The patients in tiers 4 through 6 are able to wait at home with varying medical support. A patient moved into the 1 to 3 range are most often hospitalized in an ICU to support their heart while they wait. Placement on the heart transplant waiting list depends on where your medical needs are at and other factors like blood type, height and weight, and your literal location in relation to the available donor heart. The United Network for Organ Sharing, or UNOS, manages the list and the logistics of placing a donor heart with a recipient. They warn that heart availability is unpredictable. And Matt mentioned earlier that only 3,000 heart transplants were performed last year. 
I can't imagine the weight that comes with every decision UNOS has chosen to make. You can learn more about them at UNOS.org. That's U-N-O-S dot org. Matt was on that list for 10 months. At the time, he and his family had fears about the transplant. It's a weird place to be, to be afraid of something, that you're also hoping against hope will happen. In retrospect, Matt acknowledges that maybe the risky part wasn't getting the transplant. It was getting to the transplant. So many don't, even as they get sicker and sicker. Now on the other side of his surgery, rejection is a risk for the rest of Matt's life, meaning the donor heart and Matt's body may decide they don't like each other as much as they thought, and his immune system will begin fighting against what they see as an invader. Somehow, he still sees past the challenges of his physical health, the emotional and mental hurdles, and the more practical logistics, like finances, to focus on the silver linings, the time he's able to spend with his family and the opportunity to continue living a grateful life. From the outside, I'm overwhelmed that he's able to do so without minimizing the scope of what he's been through and how it's impacted those who love him. Somehow he does, and he makes it look easy. We held it together today on the show, but there have been moments in Matt's life for him and his family where there were tears and long hugs and moments where the words wouldn't come. And earlier I mentioned the weight of the moment. Sometimes you could, and sometimes you still can see it. I don't know that it does any good to pretend it doesn't exist. However, I want to also point out that human beings were able to take Matt's heart out of his chest and replace it with another, somehow remembering to connect all the corners without the aid of color-coded directions. It's pretty incredible. For the moments when I'm struggling to understand why people do what they do, remembering that we can also make miracles, like a heart transplant happen, is what brings me back around. Finally, to the man who chose to donate his organ to the family that lost someone. Thank you. What a gift for Matt and for everyone he touches. I said it before, but as a reminder, if you'd like to sign up or just make sure you're on the transplant donor list or learn more about what that entails, go to donatelife.net. There is also a nonprofit fundraiser set up to help Matt and his family pay medical bills during this detente where he and his wife are unable to work, which you can find at donate.transplants.org backslash story backslash Matt Hankus. I know it's a lot. So of course you'll be able to find that link and all the links from this episode in this show's podcast notes and of course on roastwestcoast.com. Thank you for taking a moment to check it out and learn more about organ donation. And that's it. That's all for this episode, the very first of the Coffee with Podcast. If you're listening on one of Roast West Coast's other podcast threads, please search for Coffee with and hit the follow button. If you know someone else who I should have a cup of coffee with, someone who has a good story to share, please reach out either through the newsletter on roastwestcoast.com or through one of the at Roast West Coast social media feeds on Instagram or Facebook. This episode of the Coffee with Podcast presented by Roast West Coast, is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. A big thank you to Matt Hankus for spending an hour with us, and to his family, Leanne, Hannah, and Elise, for giving him up for that same hour. I also want to thank Craft 42 Roasters in Kelowna, British Columbia, for the great coffee that I drank on today's episode. You can find them at craft42roasters.ca. Until next time, wherever you are, 
Thanks for taking a moment to have a coffee with me. Hey out there, thanks for listening. Did you know this podcast is a listener and reader supported creative effort? Some amazing listeners and readers have chosen paid subscriptions to the Roast West Coast Coffee Newsletter on RoastWestCoast.com. Those awesome people are part of a growing community who appreciate craft coffee, learning about coffee, and being inspired by the guests on this show. If you are able and this show has been going really well with your morning mug of your favorite coffee, please subscribe to the paid newsletter at RoastWestCoast.com. Thanks for listening, thanks for subscribing, and thanks for drinking good coffee.